Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. There we go. Tonight we're talking about inner conflict. What causes the lack of uh, self-acceptance? Why is it that so many of us struggle with internal battles and we're going to be looking at different theories and we're going to be uh, addressing uh, inner conflicts using some both Buddhist and contemporary therapeutic modalities. And hopefully I can offer you something worthy of your consideration. So let's just jump in and I'm actually going to take off my glasses because they're not helping at all. Um, so we're all born with an innate psychobiological system or drive that motivates us to do what? To establish proximity with others. Why do we need proximity? Because we are a tribal species that connects with others for a sense of security and being seen makes us actually uh, have certain uh, core psychobiological changes and what are those? Well, unconsciously, we mimic the way other people breathe, their posture, their movements, their facial expressions. We are a mimicking species. And when we connect with other people, our essentially our feelings, our limbic structures, our uh, everything from our core emotional states up to our thoughts, start to synchronize. And this is such an important topic that there's different names from it across the entire realm of um, from uh, clinical psychology, neuropsychology, um, even uh, studies of groups and sociology, some of the names emotion co-regulation or limbic resonance or what is it, implicit learning in the work of Bandura and affect stabilization and all the way down the line. Um, essentially, as a tribal species, we, when we meet together, the benefits of connecting is that it uh, creates not only a linkage of our autonomic nervous system and the way we breathe and our states of our body, but through connection with others, then being seen and understood creates homeostasis. We begin to relax. We begin to, uh, we leave states of hypervigilance and anxiety, and we actually leave states of, of shutdown and depression. But another benefit of connecting with other human beings is that it creates feelings, it promotes feelings of self-esteem and self-acceptance. What? How can that be? Well, in fact, wonderful clinical papers such as a massive meta-analysis called the link between uh, self-esteem, let me see in my notes, the link between self-esteem and social relationships by Harrison Orth of 47,000 people showed a direct correlation or reciprocal interaction between the 
empathy and the warm regard in our connections with others and our internal sense of cohesiveness and the way we feel about our behaviors and our uh, the internal degrees of compassion we have for all of our emotional unconscious behaviors and so forth. So one of the results of being in a pandemic is that social isolation disrupts this inter this internal cohesion, the sense that we have of compassion, the ability we can to comfortably uh, accept different parts of ourselves. So while our cognitive functions might try to maintain a pro-social appearance and might try to act as if we are functioning well and might want to present the most positive image to the world. Meanwhile, over time, when we don't have enough social connections, the ramifications are a core region of the brain, a circuit known as the HPA axis. What is that? That's your hypothalamus, your pituitary gland, and your adrenaline, your, I'm sorry, adrenal glands. And there's an axis that connects your, the, the brain down through the sympathetic nervous system to your, the adrenal glands right above your kidneys. And it actually switches on the release of cortisol, stress, uh, anxiety, thoughts begin to repeat and cycle. Anxiety, fight flight impulses begin to uh, abound. And over time, many of us will crash into a state of overwhelm or depression. In a wonderful study uh, that I have to look up the name of because it's so uh, impossible to remember the study's name, this, the neuroendocrinology of social isolation, my God, the kind of things I read, uh, by John Cocciopo, a great, great social psychologist, noted that the presence of loneliness in any span of an adult's life is the greatest single predictor of anxiety, depression, and a lack of internal cohesiveness, where a form of self-acceptance. Fortunately, on the one hand, the mind can actually address its lack of in, in, integration. But why is it, we should also ask, that we have minds that are so quick to judge our own behavior, so quick to uh, criticize uh, acts and impulses that are so normative? Why is it we are our own at times worst critic and harsh taskmaster. Well, let's start off. Um, we like to think of our minds in the same way that uh, it appears. Uh, up until even Descartes and afterwards, this concept of mind was that thought was absolutely at the epicenter of the mind. And that thought should be in control of all of our behaviors, all of our impulses, all of our drives, our entire state of being should be controlled by how we think. Descartes called that, I think, therefore I am, because thought for him was the absolute epicenter of being. But over in Western thought, 
Over the course of uh, psychology from Freud, William James, up through recent giants in the field, Antonio Damasio, Joseph Ledoux, uh, Gazaniga, uh, Ian McGilchrist, some of the giants in both neuropsychology and um, uh, just general psychological theory and modalities, noted that in fact, thought isn't at the center of the mind, that there are competing regions and drives that are are very often uh, in cohesion if we are in pro-social environments or if we are chasing after something that all parts of the brain are in agreement with. But these regions, in fact, have very different agendas and these regions of the brain are after very competing, often, uh, goals. For example, and I'm not going to go through them all because that would be a talk in and of itself, but the left hemisphere of the brain views the world in terms of separate objects. It doesn't see a whole. It sees like, oh, that's something I can eat, or that's something I don't like, or that's something I could use as a tool. The left hemisphere splits the world into objects that we can exploit, and it represents the world in thought and concepts and ideas, and it comes up with what could be called a superego, what we call the ideal state that we all are trying to achieve. I want to look good. I want to be confident. I want to be happy. I want to be uh, always in charge of my impulses. I want to never experience fear or sadness or loneliness. I want to be, uh, I just want to be my best possible self. And I don't want anybody to ever have to see something that I'm not in control of. But then we have the right hemisphere which has our core attachment patterns. Who are we attracted to? Who do we turn to for love? And these are unconsciously driven, set in early childhood. Also, the right hemisphere is responsible for our negative emotions. And it views the world as completely one. It doesn't see us as separate from other people or from the world. It sees this... um, ongoing state of connection. It has no concept of past or future, unlike the left brain that constantly plans for the future. And then we have regions in the midbrain, which has the core drives to fight and flee, desire to, to, uh, for sex and to consume, and the nurturing, caregiving drives and all of the core survival uh, impulses are hosted there. So in in essence, what we have is a brain that's absolutely capable of being in conflict with itself. And that conflict with itself, in the absence of ongoing interpersonal support, is very, very likely to be exacerbated. Now, while I talked about this in terms of Western views, I should note that the Buddha for the Buddha's insights, which stem from 2,500 years ago, he observed just through his own internal uh, his own internal practice he also saw a brain or a mind i should say in conflict with itself he talked about different mind states and anusayas that constantly seek different agendas some gravitate to aversion some seek 
you know, push away and constantly see what's the, what's wrong with any situation. Some drives, he note, constantly seek pleasure. Some, he said, are drives of restless anxiety. Sometimes we feel boredom and self-doubt or even grandiosity. On the other hand, we also have what he called chetasikas that gravitate uh, towards positive states, satisfaction, joy, confidence, gratitude, etc. And he noted that the that this ongoing conflicts create what's called viparinama dukkha, or the suffering of constant change and a lack of internal stability. So there's this wisdom that has been there for some 2,500 years that has noted that that not that the primary source of suffering was not between self and other or self and our what we need and the world but actually internal conflicts deriving from completely often incompatible needs for the buddha the answer was to separate the observer what he called sati mindfulness to separate it from these drives and to be able to observe them without judgment without criticism, without any overlay of this is good or bad, and to begin to be able to have a awareness that can pick and choose which drive, which impulse we use, and which we put on hold. And now we're going to talk about that exact same idea, but from a contemporary uh, psychological perspective that's very friendly to Buddhism. We're going to be talking about how our core internal conflicts often uh, involve two factors. One, the conscious inner chatter, sometimes could be called the inner critic, the inner narrator, and our unconscious emotional beliefs, which are the ideas or beliefs we have of how we need to survive. And we're going to be investigating it from a relatively new psychological modality known as internal family systems, which is so friendly with Buddhist practice that the, the founder of it, Richard Schwartz, actually teaches Buddhist retreats with other Buddhist teachers, such as a, a friend, Locke Kelly, wonderful teacher. And so this view of the mind and what causes inner conflict and lack of acceptance, I think is a really easy way to grasp and to begin to work with our own struggles with lack of self-acceptance and our own struggles with lack of compassion. So in Schwartz's view, we all have these memories or feelings that are exiled into the unconscious, what Freud called the repressed. And we have these feelings or exiles hold all of our traumas, the memories of being rejected socially in childhood, the times we sought to be connected with our parents, our guardians or older siblings in childhood, but felt rejected. 
and uh, all of the attachment wounds from stemming from relationships where we felt judged or um, uh, you know not taken care of and so these exiles are compartmentalized held outside of awareness the feelings in them are overwhelming and if we re-experience them they can feel almost like annihilation other so these are what we keep out of awareness at all costs these exiled feelings of abandonment rejection loss lack of worthiness and so forth now in internal family systems in Schwartz's view, we have different parts that arise that um, help us essentially keep these painful feelings repressed. Some of these parts are called managers. What are managers? Well, they're, they're inclinations or behaviors or practices or routines that prevent us from re-experiencing pain by maintaining a positive look to other people. It's constantly driven by the need to look good, to be acceptable, to be uh, essentially seen as in control. And these managers essentially um, come in different forms. I'll just list a few of them, and I think many of them will be familiar to you. There's, of course, the most prevalent is the inner critic, the perfectionist, the part, the inner chatter, the voice in us that tells us that we haven't done good enough, that we should be producing more, that we should be more uh, capable, that we are, that we should, that we're too much, that we are, that we haven't gotten our stuffed shit together and so forth and so on. That's always looking in the aftermath of after we've done the best we could and has found something wrong with us. And then there's the drill sergeant, the part that always wants to be efficient, that keeps a stiff upper lip, that feels the only way we can survive is by going to work even when we're sick, by not expressing our emotions, by essentially being professional or being uh, essentially logical at all times. Some of us have the people pleaser, the part that survived childhood as uh, by taking care of other people, by always worrying about other people's emotions by always uh, being seen as helpful. Many of us have the warrior that survives by always keeping preparing for bad outcomes and uh, always is on guard. Me, I grew up with a strong sense of, because of my family dynamics, of the intellectual, always wanting to be smart or seen as smart or intelligent because that was the uh, attribute most prized by my, my parents. Now, all of these in and of themselves, if they are not 
overburdened with our survival are fine. There's nothing wrong with having an inner critic that sometimes pushes us to do better. There's nothing wrong with attempting to please other people or take care of other people. There's nothing wrong with trying to say smart things. There's nothing wrong with occasionally worrying about bad outcomes. But if any of these attributes feel that they have to ensure our survival to the extent of any other attribute, to the extent that any other impulse or or behavior is unacceptable, well, then these parts that normally would be helpful become essentially um, unsustainable and actually over time create nothing but stress and suffering and they create conflict and we'll talk about how they do that in a second. There's a second group though of protector parts that keep the emotional pain away. These parts don't care about looking good to other people. These parts are essentially step in when our managers fail, when the drill sergeant, the people pleaser, the intellectual, the worrier, where the inner critic all stops helping us. And they very often, these other parts come out when we're alone. These are known as firefighters. Firefighters step in when our managers fail and they too, their job as well is to distract us from pain. What are some examples of firefighters? Well, some for us are compulsive reward seekers. Those that compensate for our lack of dopamine by shopping or eating or media consumption, looking at screens, watching Netflix, a drive for sex. All of these raise our dopamine levels and make us feel rewarded, but if they become compulsive and if they become addictions where we need more and more to get less reward, if there's no other way we can feel any sense of inner esteem or protect ourselves from our loneliness or abandonment feelings by simply constantly driving again and again and again to shop or to eat or to play video games or to simply seek sex all the time, well then these these otherwise healthy drives actually become um, essentially things that we can become ashamed of and can actually create deficit states where we're constantly in need and never feeling any sense of reward. Another example of a firefighter is the compulsive soother. This doesn't want rewards. This wants to shut down and relax. Now, healthily, this can help us sleep. This can help us check out at times when we are tired and exhausted. But other times, or for some, not me, some can enjoy a glass of red wine and take the edges off. But for others, it requires an ongoing need to shut down, to check out, to, to essentially sleep through our lives, to drink, to consume downers, to numb ourselves. And finally, another example of a firefighter is the victim, the part of us that comes out at home, that complains and lists all of the unfairness and looks at everything in our life as if 
we didn't have any agency and that we somehow were put into every situation without any choices and constantly needs to compensate for um, our disappointments with ongoing, essentially, uh, inner chatter surrounding self-pity. Now, of course, feelings of sadness and feeling disappointed are absolutely healthy when they're in balance. But when they're taken to an extreme, this kind of endless um, state of victimization or complaining, in fact, it not only undermines our ability to claim agency in our life, but it also gets in conflict with the parts such as the inner critic or the people pleaser or the the drill sergeant in us that constantly wants to look good. So essentially, Schwartz uh, notes that most of the lack of self-acceptance and the inner conflicts we experience come between two kinds of overburdened parts. There's the part that we are constant we rely on in our day-to-day life to look good to other people such as the critic that constantly pushes us to do better and is never satisfied or the people pleaser or the part of us that needs to always be smart or the worrier and on the other hand there is those addictive drives such as the uh, need to con- to come home and just relax and soothe and sleep or the constant reward seeker. Essentially, the managers in us hate it when the firefighters step in. The manager parts of us always want to be in control, and they don't want to have parts of us that don't necessarily look good to others. The inner critic hates the fact that there is a food addict in us that compensates for feelings of loneliness and lack of love or or being seen by eating because in childhood being fed was associated with being loved being being appreciated the drill sergeant in us feels guilt over the part that just needs to shut down and relax and take time off and so forth the intellectual in us might hate the fact that at times we don't have anything smart to say that we just feel like a victim or feel overwhelmed by life. The point to note most essentially is that none of these parts are bad. It's only when we've become so reliant on any one part to survive that the internal orchestra becomes unsustainable. And what's worse, the more we rely on these, on any part to survive, the more we keep ourselves from returning to and feeling the exile parts and to essentially begin to process, hold, nurture, take care of all the wounded feelings of abandonment and loss and disappointment that we've been protecting ourselves from all of our lives. So in, in essence, these parts, when they become so overburdened and so prominent and so relied on, when we're constantly evaluating ourselves or constantly trying to figure out 
through our intellect what to do with our life or when we're constantly checking out with alcohol or when we're constantly checking out with pot or with any other drugs or video games or when we're constantly pleasing other people or constantly caregiving all that we're doing is running from these feelings of disconnection loneliness lack of connection an interesting Schwartz noted, just as the Buddha noted, that the solution is to separate our awareness, our inner ability to observe from these parts, to be able to step back. Because when these parts become so overburdened and prominent, we fuse with them. We feel, I am a worrier, or I am a perfectionist, or I am a, you know, a caregiver, or I am an alcoholic and all of these you know can be tendencies of course but when we begin to define ourselves so rigidly that we cannot separate ourselves and actually have a a part of us that observes but is not controlled by these parts and I should say, you know, as someone who's been in recovery from alcohol addiction, I am on the one hand an alcoholic, but I don't let my alcoholism define who I am. I'm not fused with that idea. So, I don't, did I say 35? I have 25 years. I don't know if I said 35. My God, exaggerating. The grandiose part of me coming out. So, um, so it's important not to judge to not to evaluate, not to reject any part of ourself, but to one, understand what they are trying to do, what their fear is, what they're scared of that will feel if they don't. And then to begin to give these parts of ourselves different tasks and to alleviate them of their need to constantly be in control. So what we're actually going to do is a meditation that integrates insight practice and internal family systems is taught in conjunction with insight meditation. So we're actually going to do a meditation where we begin to discern the different parts. We're only going to discern two, one manager and one firefighter. We're going to understand what they are, what their goals are what they really want to achieve and what they're scared of. And then we're going to not only find uh, ways that they can, or at least begin to find ways that they can address these, um, their, their concerns in healthier ways, but we're also going to seek if we can get permission from these parts to connect with some of this exiled feelings of pain because if we can feel these early losses or wounds and begin to hold them then once we can feel and connect with our exiles then the need to be over reliant on these managers or other parts begins to subside and actually we can start to orchestrate our mind rather than be driven by our addictions or driven by our need to look good but until we can actually feel those feelings and hold them with compassion, then our need to be always, you know, on, always 
perfect, always pleasing, always um, intellectual, smart, always something will drive us because we're running, we're scared of simply feeling something that we can actually hold. So, whew, that was the uh, talk. I hope something in there was interesting because, boy, that was a lot. Um, now what we're going to do is actually practice the meditation where we connect with these parts and we um, actually begin to um, reduce the conflict and begin some self-acceptance. Uh, I should, as always, I forgot at the, the beginning of the meeting to note that for those of you who've uh, by any means has been negatively, you know, uh, affected financially by the, um, uh, the uh, of course, the pandemic and don't uh, have an income stream or just have a reduced income stream, no, no worries. If you still have um, money that you'd like to just donate to help a Buddhist teacher in New York keep doing whatever the my Buddhist pastor work and all that uh, then the Venmo for that is Dharma Punks D-H-A-R-M-A-P-U-N-X-N-Y-C and if you want to give by PayPal it's just on that site dharmapunks.nyc.com so that's the pitch the I guess we'll all be in the future on Zoom making a pitch for our survival. It looks like that's the way the world is heading. So uh, thank you for that. And now onto our meditation. Let's find a really comfortable seated position. A meditation is a balance between effort and relaxation or ease. And the effort part is actually pretty simple. For me, all I do in my uh, meditation is I just put the effort into keeping my head nice, upright, and so that my head doesn't slouch in front of my uh, chest. So, um, yeah, I just lift my chin up a little bit and just uh, keep my head a little bit back so that it doesn't feel the urge to slouch in front of my chest. And that's pretty much all the effort that I put in. Uh, the rest of the effort is internal to keep bringing my attention away from thoughts and back to other topics of reflection. So just see if you can find a nice way to balance your head and then just relax the rest of your body. Just release. Let's take a nice in-breath and then the long smooth exhalation in-breath whenever you like don't follow my breath very long exhalation so balancing or extending the length of the exhalation engages your parasympathetic nervous system and that relaxes you. And that's the job really mostly of our practice. But if you're really tired, exhausted, and you feel you might just check out and fall asleep, well then, big in-breath, just release the breath, but just breathe really, the in-breath really full and into your chest. 
So the emphasis is on the inhalation to wake up and the exhalation to uh, soothe, if you want to soothe and relax. And we're just going to scan through the body and just use the scan to relax and uh, address different parts that very often become tense. So first, just breathing. Imagine you could breathe into your forehead and as you breathe in, just become aware of is there any sense of uh, furrowing? I think that's the verb, furrowing of the brow. You know what I mean. And if uh, you notice that when you breathe out, just relax that area. So you breathe in, you notice, you breathe out, and it's as if you could feel the breath energy releasing right through your forehead. And then breathing into the micro muscles around the eyes. And then as you breathe out, relaxing, softening, breathing in, becoming aware, breathing out, releasing. And send a special request to your eyes to relax and float comfortably. When the eyes relax, the mind follows. And then breathing into, say, the muscles around the mouth. As you breathe in, just become aware. Is there any tension around the corners or above or below? Are you clenching your jaw? And as you breathe out, just soften and release. So the breath of the exhalation is associated with release. Breathing into the muscles in the throat. Some of us keep the throat clenched. And then as you breathe out, relaxing. Any clenching or tightness. And now I'd like to invite you just to use this spotlight of awareness and the breath and just see if you can go through your body using your inhalation to just find areas that are feel tight or heavy or numb or uh, uncomfortable and then as you breathe out just soften Encourage the muscles to release. Use the breath as like this soothing energy that can flow anywhere. So, for example, if you feel a sense of tightness in your right shoulder, just 
Breathe in there and feel like as you breathe in, the, that area of the body high lit, lit with awareness. And then as you breathe out, just encourage the right shoulder to drop and relax a little more. using awareness as a spotlight that can find even the subtlest area of discomfort or tightness. And even if the out-breath doesn't completely ease or, to or create a sense of greater comfort, just in the, with the out-breath, just wish these sensations ease. May you be at peace. May you be easeful. Trying to attain a state of nowhere to go, nothing to do, 
nothing to take care of, nothing is missing, nothing is missing. There's nothing missing. This moment is complete. Everything right now we need to be peaceful is here. Let's take a nice full in-breath, and as we breathe out, like, imagine the in-breath is coming into the top of the head, and as we breathe out, it's like a warm shower of ease floating down the body, releasing the shoulders, the belly, sit bones, the palms relax, the feet relax, nothing is missing. Everything we need right now to be at peace is here. So at this time, I'd like you to bring to mind some attribute, some tendency of our inner chatter, our inner narrator, something that's at times so important to us that it drives our ongoing consideration, a tendency that we rely on to look good to people. For some of us, that's needing to take care of others at times, even at the expense of taking care of ourselves. For some of us, it's the need to be funny or smart or pleasing when at the expense of stating our real needs or just allowing ourselves to relax and not need to say anything. For some of us, it's the need to always be seen as professional, capable, at the expense of taking, uh, taking off enough time to heal, to have other parts of our life that are important. Some part that's become, or some tendency that's become so relied on that over time we can't even switch it off sometimes. To see what that evokes. If you can have an image or a name for this part, sometimes we can name it. Not 
naming it a really negative name, just like, okay, the pleaser, the, the entertainer, the competent, the critic, the, what is it? Not judging, but just giving it a name and then, or an image. Was there a certain time in our life as a child or growing up that this tendency began? Can you have an image in your mind of when this developed? We just ask either this image or this name or this feeling in the body of what it's like to be in this part. What are you afraid would happen if you didn't do this job? So, for instance, we might ask that part that judges us, that critic, what do you, what do you feel would happen if we didn't criticize ourselves as much as we do? This is not a rhetorical question. This is really out of interest. What are you afraid would happen? So the critic might say, if I don't judge you, you'll fall apart. You won't get anything done. It's because of me. The critic, I'm the one that drives you to succeed and do well. If it's the people pleaser, it might say, well, if you didn't have me, people wouldn't like you. If it's the entertainer in us, the intellectual, the funny, the life of the party, that might say back to us, well, if you didn't have me, people would be bored by you. What is this part trying to do? And then we might ask it, well, let's try to ease up a little bit. To the critic, we might even say, not only ease up, but maybe you could tell me when you think I've not done all I could do or I've somehow messed up. Maybe you could tell me in a way that's a little less judgmental and harsh. Or maybe you could step aside and just allow me, the awareness part, to have, to, maybe you could take a break and just allow me a little time. Maybe I don't always have to be perfect. Maybe I don't always have to worry about being pleasing. Maybe I don't always have to worry about taking care of others or being entertaining. Maybe I don't have to worry all the time. Maybe we can find another part. Just know this part, know what it needs, but then assure it that we can take care of some of those needs. I can look after myself. Maybe we can show it with a reflection in our mind that People will still like us even if we're not funny or smart all the time 
or caregiving all the time. Maybe we can tell the worrier we'll still be okay, even if we're not catastrophizing. Reminded of times that we were caught off guard, something happened that we weren't worried about and we did totally okay. Now let's move on to the firefighter. This should be easier for some of us to visualize what's that part of us where we that comes out that we're often ashamed of, that we can't accept. The shopping, the eating, the, the drink, the Netflix binging, the... Uh, the part of us are the behaviors that we don't want others to know about. What are they? What is it I don't want other people to know about? And yet still, these firefighters appear. Many of us for years have felt this drive and still can't get a hold on it. And we're just going to ask what to this part, what are you scared I would feel? Or what were you scared what would, would happen if you didn't rush in at times in my life? Those times when I come home and I go, for instance, on Amazon or I turn on Netflix, even though there's other things I could do to soothe or to relax, but what is it driving these impulses? What are, the, what are you scared I would feel? For many of us, these firefighters are scared that we'll reconnect and feel our exile feelings of, if I, if I don't eat, that core feeling of loneliness or abandonment, not being good enough. If I don't stay watching the news compulsively, I'll be alone. I will not know what's important. Other people will. I'll be caught off guard. If I don't If I don't sleep all the time, I'll have to feel this unpleasant feeling of lack of purpose or lack of reward in my life. Everything will just feel heavy. What we're asking this, these drives, these behaviors, are you there to protect us from? And lastly, let's bring up, ask that firefighter and those managers to step aside. Just feel into the body and just ask if there's anything in there willing to 
appear that I've been running from, that I've been afraid to hold and connect with? What feeling am I scared of? What part of me, so deeply hidden and compartmentalized, do I just need to care for? Just connecting with that exile part that we're so frightened of, we over-rely on endlessly trying to look good to get to others at all costs, or over-rely on addictive compulsions to numb ourselves. Just see if you can just open and find in your body some core feeling What is it at times we're scared we'll feel if we come to a complete stop? For me, sometimes the heaviness in the heart center associated with sadness over spending so much time doing jobs and things that I didn't love, feeling I abandoned myself, or a tightness in my belly associated with times in childhood of where I felt no one was looking after me, I was alone, I wasn't safe. I'm willing to feel, to hold, to be compassionate with all of my internal experience, rejecting nothing, accepting everything. None of my feelings are wrong. So in a moment, I'm going to ring the bell, and as always, the request is when you hear the sound to very slowly open your eyes, maybe look at the ground in front of you or at your hands, and just try to bring sight in in such a way that it doesn't 
push outside of your awareness, your feelings in your body, anything that you've connected with, any, any internal state that your meditation might bring. And um, just take your time. Just try to, mindfulness is a balance between external awareness and internal awareness.